0: Welcome to Talk with a Doc, the show where we bring your questions to Providence medical experts for insight and information. Remember, everyone, all of our questions come from you, our listeners, via social media. We can be found on Twitter at Providence and on Facebook under Providence Health System. Use the hashtag Talk with a Doc, that's hashtag Talk with a Doc, for a chance to hear your questions in our episodes. Welcome to our broadcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sharazad Khan. I'm a hospitalist at St. John's Providence in Santa Monica. Here we are today with Dr. Tracy Childs and Tammy Leader Fuller, Uh, we're going to talk about diverticulitis. As a reminder, the information provided during this event is for educational purposes only. If you have any questions regarding medical conditions or treatment plans, please consult your physician. Now let's get started. Joining me today is Dr. Tracy R. Childs, Chief of Surgery at Providence St. John's Health Center and one of our diverticulitis patients, Tammy Leader fuller Dr. Childs, would you please tell us a little bit about your role at Providence? Sure, I'm
1: on the active staff at Providence and I've been here at for the last 30 years. I'm a general surgeon and a colon and rectal surgeon and I have been recently involved in leadership positions as chief of staff and now chief of surgery and I had the amazing opportunity to work with Tammy um, and take care of her and she's going to share her story in a bit and that's me.
0: Great, thank you. Tammy, tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: What Dr. Childs didn't say is she saved my tush in such a huge way. I had diverticulitis and I did not know it for about seven months. And by the time I got to the hospital, which was not a Providence hospital, it was another hospital, I spent 30 days there. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But Dr. Childs saved me from what I thought was going to be what I was told by other surgeons was going to be a colostomy bag. And by the time Dr. Childs, treated me, operated on me, and completely healed me. I am
0: fabulous and perfect and feel great. Wow, wow, thank you for sharing that. So Dr. Childs, can you share with us, uh, I think you have a presentation, what exactly is diverticulosis and diverticulitis?
1: Dr. Khan, I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) So I'm gonna talk about um, an overview of diverticulitis I want you to understand what the symptoms of diverticulitis are and are not, and what the safe and effective treatment options are. And we'll talk about the outcomes and post-procedure recovery. And then Tammy's gonna share her pathway to health. So what is diverticulitis? Diverticulosis is a condition that occurs when small pouches or sacs push out through weak spots in the wall of the colon. And they're most common in the lower part of the colon called the sigmoid colon. And I'll show you what that is. Most people with diverticulosis don't have any symptoms. And in fact, 50% of people over the age of 50 actually have these little pouches on screening colonoscopy. Diverticulitis occurs when a few of the pouches in the wall of the colon become inflamed and that can lead to complications. Um, chronic diverticulitis can lead to chronic stricturing or scarring in the colon. It can lead to a significant um, abscess or infection or uh, inflammatory mass. The other complication of diverticulosis can be bleeding. So it's uh, diverticular disease is one of the causes of lower GI bleeding. So we need to understand the symptoms of diverticulitis because that's really what we're talking about here. And you can see on the left side of this slide, the whole colon in place, and it's, it is the left and lower half or part of that slide or that image, I'm sorry, that is the sigmoid colon. And the, the other half of that image is what diverticular condition looks like, it's those little outpouching. So the symptoms of diverticulitis include pain, usually in the left lower quadrant, sometimes in the middle above the bladder area, because the bladder is adjacent to the sigmoid colon. And when the sigmoid colon gets inflamed, and if it's touching the bladder, you can get urinary symptoms. Fever, so fever is a very important part of the constellation of symptoms of true diverticulitis with infection. Constipation, when your colon is inflamed, it doesn't work right. It doesn't move things forward. And so people feel constipated. And that may be the only symptom that they have of mild diverticular disease is constipation and fatigue. So when you're sick, truly sick, Um, your body is spending all of its energy trying to fight this infection and people feel just what we call malaise or fatigue. And then I mentioned um, urinary symptoms. And sometimes the only symptoms people have when they have diverticulitis, if they're lucky enough not to have the severe pain, is discomfort when they're urinating, not like a regular UTI, which burns when you pee, but sort of a pulling sensation that you get in the lower abdomen when you're trying to urinate, or at the end of urinating, that's pulling on the bladder. Very rarely does a, um, a diverticular abscess break through into the bladder, and that's called a vesicle fistula. And you know that's happening because you pee bubbles. And so that's called pneumaturia. And it's not common, but it happens. So, what are the safe and effective treatment options for diverticular disease? Most people with diverticulosis, we do nothing. If people start having left lower quadrant pain, I don't advocate for treating with antibiotics just based on the fact that they have known diverticular disease on colonoscopy. So evaluation, including a CT scan to actually document diverticulitis or inflammatory changes around the sigmoid colon is, is key. And once it's documented, then we can move forward with any time the patient has those recurrent symptoms, it is likely to be related to um, diverticular disease. Dietary changes. So we all know that a high fiber diet is a very healthy diet when you have active diverticular disease oftentimes a low fiber diet to rest the colon is a good idea and it allows um, a lot of people will put themselves on a clear liquid diet for a couple of days and all of a sudden they're better we don't really know whether that was diverticulitis or something else unless it's documented by ct scan um, but it it never hurts to start with that. You know, if you're having abdominal pain, it's best not to go and eat a <laughs> bean and cheese burrito. So um, oral, oral antibiotics, and somebody who's had diverticulitis and has similar symptoms, including fever and malaise and tenderness or whatever, They may be started on oral antibiotics, and it's not just what you have at home that you used for your urinary tract infection or leftover stuff from the skin infection. It actually has to be antibiotics that will cover the organisms that are involved um, in diverticulitis most commonly, and those are gram-negative organisms as well as anaerobic organisms. So it's really important not to just treat yourself. I have lots of patients who you know take their antibiotics with them when they travel and as soon as they get gassy they start taking their antibiotics and it's not a good idea because there are antibiotic associated um colon infections like clostridium difficile colitis which are initiated by killing all the good flora in the colon and you know allowing the bad flora to grow and give you an infection and that's related to um the overuse of antibiotics in patients who are either hospitalized or need to be on bowel rest and can't tolerate orals, or they're so sick that they are unstable, IV antibiotics are the treatment of choice. And then once they're improved, a transition to oral antibiotics and home on oral antibiotics. And then surgery is uh, is a final option for patients who have um, have exhausted the other options or who have complicated diverticulitis um, recurrence or either not treatable by medical therapy. Let's talk about some of the myths regarding diverticulitis. First of all, the most important one to get rid of in the back of your head is that nuts and seeds cause diverticulitis and it's amazing to me how when I tell people they can eat popcorn and strawberries they get very excited. So nuts and seeds the whole nuts and seeds deal is a is an old wives tale. Another myth is that all patients with diverticulosis will get diverticulitis and that's actually actually not true. So we talked about half the population or the 50, over 50% have these little pockets. And you can see by the image on the bottom of the screen, that's a colonoscopy image of what diverticulosis looks like, these little pockets. But only very rare, very few patients actually get diverticulitis. Another myth, once a patient gets diverticulitis, they're going to keep getting diverticulitis. And there are patients who get, one episode of mild diverticulitis and get another one 10 years later or never get another one. And there are patients who end up, like Tammy, who never really recognized diverticular disease until they ended up with their their first recognized episode in the hospital. And and that could be a one and done. So it's very unpredictable and it's really important to have somebody follow you who can really um, use the data behind your particular case to determine what whether you need to be treated and what kind of treatment you need. The other one is once a patient gets diverticulitis, they have to have surgery. And that's actually not true. We used to say that once you had an episode of complicated diverticulitis, a perforation or an abscess or a hospitalization, you had to have surgery, especially in the younger patient. Now we find that patients, some patients do fine with repeated Um, outpatient treatments or even no treatment at all. And so there's some literature to support that every time you get what you think is diverticulitis, you don't need to be put on antibiotics. And we'll talk about that more. And the final myth and the thing that scares people away from surgery is that diverticulitis surgery means getting a bag. And that even if you have complicated diverticulitis and you're very sick, that you have to have a colostomy and that's absolutely not true and it's actually very rare in the in this day and age that patients will end up with an emergency surgery and a colostomy from perforated diverticulitis and that's only usually if they come in septic and have to have emergent surgical therapy. So let's talk about some treatment options for diverticular disease. Diverticulosis, I'm going to say it again, doesn't warrant any concern or treatment. All left lower quadrant pain doesn't require antibiotics. Antibiotic treatment for is for pain associated with infection, and that's with the hallmarks of fever, malaise. Medical therapy is often adequate, and surgery is reserved for complicated diverticulitis that doesn't respond to medical therapy, or patients who have recurrent episodes with mild diverticulitis that interfere with their quality of life that causes them to take time off work three or four times a year, or who travel a lot and and are concerned about being in another country where they get an attack and have to be hospitalized. So that's an absolutely legitimate indication. Um, Again, it used to be thought that patients who had a perforation or an abscess then needed to go on to have surgery. But what we found is actually only a very small portion of those patients will go on to have another episode of complicated diverticulitis requiring some kind of intervention. So just because you had an abscess, if it's treated with drainage or with antibiotics and you get better and you have no problem, it doesn't mandate surgery. But I'm a surgeon, so let's talk about surgical options. And I want people to know that there, this is not your grandma's surgery anymore, so I'm going to show you the way that I treat diverticulitis surgically, um, including the use of enhanced recovery pathways that hopefully will alleviate any fear that you all might have out there about surgery. So let's talk about enhanced recovery pathways. Um, that involves nutritional prehabil- prehabilitation before surgery. And that means um, drinking these uh, box drinks five days, twice a day, for five days before you start your bowel prep to clean your bowel out, like you do with colonoscopy, and then clear liquid special drink um, on the day that you're doing your bowel prep and even a box of the clear liquid drink the morning of surgery. What that does is it's got some special ingredients that decrease the risk of wound infection. And on the day of surgery, this whole myth about nothing to eat or drink before midnight or at, after midnight before surgery, we've gone away with that and found that patients do much better with carbohydrate loading and um, and, um, and adequate hydration before surgery. Narcotic sparing pain management is a big deal. I, it used to be that pain was the fifth vital sign that patients weren't allowed to have any pain after surgery and we flipped that all around on its head and it's, it's an amazing thing. Ibuprofen and Tylenol um, with, sur- with and around surgery and that's all you'll need after surgery if you need that at all. And it's pretty, the way that we do minimally invasive surgery now, patients are so happy not to be given narcotic pain medicine. Minimally invasive surgery is, has been a big change. So it used to be when somebody was sick with diverticulitis, it was a big midline incision and then worrying about the bag and drains and all this. And I'm going to show you some pictures of minimally invasive surgery, um, robotic assisted laparoscopic surgery. That's been a game changer. After surgery, How long are you going to be in the hospital? The average of my patients being in the hospital um, who are coming in electively um, for surgery for diverticular disease is anywhere from only one to three days, the average being two days. We get patients, they're not in much pain after surgery. We get them out of bed and walking. We feed them regular food on the day of surgery. We're not using narcotics, so they're not goopy and sluggish and nauseated, Um, kept you know, any catheters come out, we get them up walking around, and then they're like, I'm ready to go home. And it's an amazing thing. And when you discharge to home, we encourage you to resume your normal activities. And that means driving as soon as you're comfortable enough to swerve and slam on the brakes and can be a good defensive driver, as well as going back to work. And it used to be six weeks, you know, 10 days in the hospital, six weeks at home, Half time back at work, and now it's you know home for a week. I'm bored and back to work, and which is where most people want to be. This is a picture of a robotic operating room, and unfortunately, that's a man sitting at the robot. But um, you know that would be me sitting at the console. And it's what- okay. We
0: can imagine that's you sitting at the I console.
1: Any pictures online of women surgeons? It kind of was terrible. But uh, anyway, that's the surgeon sitting at the console looking into a 3D high definition viewer with his hands in the controls. And that's the da Vinci robot. And soon to come, there will be other um, other organizations who have robots. And the only thing the robot does is it attaches the arms attached to instruments like laparoscopy. But instead of straight sticks, the the instruments are wristed. And you can see that this is the marking of an abdominal wall of somebody who's going to have robotic surgery and those little incisions are the size of the incision the right lower quadrant incision gets extended to about a couple of inches in order to bring out the specimen through that um, and that's it and it's pretty amazing and this is what it allows you to do so this is a patient of mine who three days after a robotic colon resection was back on the set as a set dresser, and when she sent me this picture, I just I couldn't believe it. And but it's it is the honest uh, gosh truth. So let's talk about the outcomes in post-procedure recovery. We talked about being in the hospital from one to three days. In one to two weeks, you're 75% back to normal. You can be back to work. You can be back to exercising. You can shower. You can do anything you want. Again, two to six months after surgery, normal activities, normal diet, everything. And then in your future, if the surgeon who is doing the surgery is educated about the importance of doing an adequate resection, the risk of recurrence is less than 15%. So let me give a plug for general surgeons, and I'm a general surgeon. General surgeons are awesome in a a pinch for doing this kind of surgery. If you come into the hospital and you're sick, whoever's gonna take care of you likely will be able to do it. But colon rectal surgeons have an appreciation for the fact that the entire sigmoid colon needs to be removed up to the top of the rectum, in order to minimize the risk Um, and the last picture i'm going to show you is this is a patient one day after robotic surgery and after actually that is eight hours after completion of his surgery so he's showing us his port site and his right lower quadrant extraction site and he's up and around and dressed and ready to go so my message to you is don't be afraid and my last side is, um, uh, Dr. Khan, sorry, is gonna is going to uh, introduce Tammy, and she's going to give her patient story.
0: Thank you so much for that thorough presentation. That was wonderful. My favorite part was the pose that the last patient had. He kind of had this confident model like pose with the with the incisions. And uh, so, Tammy, tell me a little bit about. Um, what, what your experience was and specifically what makes it unique to share?
2: So I didn't know that I, I had terrible pain for months actually in my lower left quadrant. And I did go to a GI doctor who told me he thought it was IBS and told me just to be careful and to, to eat low fiber foods. He had me on a lot of liquids and mashed potatoes and just sort of clean low fiber foods. And, um, was taking antibiotics and started to get sick. I threw up from them a lot. And I just, so I didn't know what it was. I was feeling intense, intense pain on my lower left side. in fact, I even went, to a like a, a body worker who puts pressure on who told me that I had a that I had a spasm. Can you imagine? So on top of where this thing was already infected, this big giant man was putting pressure on my my body and I didn't know what was wrong. By the time I figured it out, I, I ended up in the ER and uh, spent two days, they told me I had diverticulitis, spent two days they put me on a clear liquid diet Uh, And I seemed better, I was on anti-IV antibiotics and they sent me home after two days. And for two days, I was home on a low fiber diet and woke up on that Sunday morning of Mother's Day two years ago in so much pain, constipated, throwing up, but not throwing up food, mostly throwing up bile, I think, and just exhausted and nauseated and knew that something was wrong. So uh, my daughter was visiting, they rushed me to the hospital. And by the time I got there, I was in so much pain, like really moaning and groaning, and I have a very high pain tolerance. And I think the moral of this story is, you know your own body. And when your body is in unbelievable pain that is unexplainable, you're the only one who can share that. And you're the only one who can really get help. And so by the time I got there, the the doctor in the ER was shocked because they did a CAT scan and said, I had perforated my colon and I did not know that. So for two wow. days they treated me. So at this point now they couldn't, they were trying to get an antibiotic that could kill this. And over the course of, I was there for three weeks and not in your hospital, in another hospital, and um, they put me NPO with no food for 15 days, and they just kept trying to uh, trying to figure out why, why this antibiotic could not kill this, and what the, why this strain could not be contained, <clears throat> and what happened is the, their general surgeons were coming every day. They didn't get me a colorectal surgeons, and those surgeons insisted that this is not that serious in the beginning. But as the week and the second week went by, they said, we've got to do this and you're gonna need a a colostomy bag, a stoma bag. I didn't even know what that meant. They didn't know if it was gonna be permanent or temporary. But at that point I had a, I just knew my body. I knew myself. I had heard about Dr. Child. She was in another hospital. I tried to get to her. I could not, I could not get an appointment here. I am sitting in a hospital and we, when you're in a hospital and you think you're getting decent care, you trust the doctors. That's how we were raised to do that. But something inside me told me that, this is not right. That I, I needed to find. I needed to get another opinion. I couldn't get one in the hospital where I was. I finally, and I had heard about Dr. Childs, and I finally got to her through some. I, I you know, you do what you have to do when you're stuck. You know, when you're really sick, and got to her, and <clears throat> she I, she helped me transfer other another to another hospital. It's not an easy thing to do dealing with insurance and dealing with all of that. Nobody wants to do that, but you have to be your own advocate. Hmm. I knew that there had to be something different or better. I was looking for a doctor who could tell me there's another way. There's not only one way. Medicine is science, and there are a bunch of ways to go. Uh, and so I finally, it was it was two years ago today, actually, the day before Memorial Day. Her hospital was St. Johns was packed to the gills, and um, somehow, some way, miraculously, Dr. Childs. Uh, looked at my stuff. She looked, it's so easy today because you could literally take a picture with your phone of your CAT scan and text it or email it and say, hey, what do you see here? We would never, you know, used to avoid wait three days for a disc. So Dr. Childs looked at my my stuff and said, I, I can fix you. He's like, we just need to get you here. So she went so above and beyond the call of duty to help me get to St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica and was not quick to operate, said, let's try a few other things. And she tried. Tried, and we spent a week kind of experimenting. She came in twice a day. She worked with the infectious disease doctor Scott Lane, who was incredible, who was puzzled by why this this why they couldn't find an antibiotic that could kill this germ or this thing that was causing this terrible infection. But ultimately after a week, Dr. Child said, okay, we're ready. We can go do this. And she did surgery. It really wasn't a big deal at all. Like I can't, couldn't believe that I waited a month and in, in a hospital, do you know how long that is? They don't let you stay in a hospital for a month, but she would come in every day and she would, you know, and say, okay, I think we're ready. I think we're going to do this and you're going to be fine. And she pretty much assured me that I wasn't going to need a bag, not a 100%. But at the other hospital, there was no doubt. And so at 60 years old, I was turning 60. I'm like, I, I just, I, I, I really want to do this as least invasive as possible. The re- putting a colostomy bag in required, should it be able to come out nine months or a year later, going back in to reverse that. And it was going to be a whole year commitment. The beautiful part of this is that the moment she took out that part of my diseased colon, I no longer had diverticulitis and I no longer had any kind of colon disease. That's what's such a miracle.
0: And it, did you have pain? How was your pain when the moment that you took it out and how was your symptom that your body wasn't feeling well for so many days? You
2: know, after surgery, you're still, you know, I was sore, but I knew right away the pain, the intense pain that I had had at the very beginning was, you know, I never had again, because when they put you on no food, and you have nothing going through your colon, you're not in pain. That's the whole thing. But at some point, you have to eat again. And so Dr. Childs, when I first got to the hospital said, we're going to feed you, this is ridiculous that you haven't eaten. So they slowly introduced little by little and through that experimentation is how she figured out where my problem was, what my issue was. And by the time she went in and operated, it, it really was fine. And I, uh, you know, I healed fairly quickly and it really has been you know everybody says Do you, what's your diet now you know my diet is is no no different really you know that's the beautiful part that she literally it was like a pvc pipe she took out the, the 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 disease part she took one part of the pipe she attached it to the other pipe stapled it and boom i just had to take care of myself so that i didn't strain it and break that pipe but since then that pipe is solid and i I'm a happy camper. I, I can eat when I want. I'm so want.
0: happy to hear that. What I really enjoy about your story, and thank you for the opportunity to facilitate this discussion, is the doctor-patient relationship that you two have created. And that's one of my take-home messages for this talk in general is patients have responsibilities, doctors have responsibilities, and something you said, Tammy, which was you trust, I wrote it down. You trust the doctors. That's, that's something you've been taught to do. And it's true. You trust the doctors, but you also, like you said, trust your body and you know when something isn't wrong. You still you go seek it. You seek help. You seek advice of a specialist or an expert or your friends or your family. And you share, which is the purpose of this talk is for all the patients listening for all the people who are con, you know concerned or curious about their bodies and illnesses uh, the the responsibility is is really 50-50 and also um, what you said which i really loved was that medicine is a science and there's more than one way to go so seek advice from whoever you feel trust you know that you trust and also um, And also, I I wanted to ask one last question. In the interest of time, we're already close to thirty minutes. um, But you know, you know, there is there is a there's a there's a connotation with our bodies and uh, kind of a complete uh, surrendering to the process when our bodies fail. And it's, it's one of the most challenging times in life as you probably experienced with a diverticulitis or, or any new disease and diagnosis. And it's like, I had everything going on in my life and then now this happens and how did I get it? And what did I do and how do I avoid it? And that kind of, um, can you tell me about the feelings Tammy that you had with this new diagnosis and how you felt comfortable or not comfortable sharing with the people around you and now publicly with with the sharing and learning about diseases and diagnoses and your processing of it?
2: Well, interestingly, I worked with Katie Couric at the Today Show. I was a television producer, so I was and I actually sat, I don't even know if Dr. Childs knows this, I sat on the board of the American Cancer Society Colorectal uh, Division when, when Katie did her first colonoscopy live on television. So I I knew about it, and it was really that back then. That was in 2000. Nobody talked about about this, and I, you know, who wants to talk about poop? Who wants to hear about that? You know, it's not something you really talk <laughs> to just just one hand goes up. <laughs> right. um, not you know, you, it's not something that you really want to talk about. But once you've had an experience with this, you know, gut your gut health is hugely talked about right now, and it's something that we're all you know once you get over fifty you have to deal with. And so for me, I didn't really talk much about it when I was going through it because I didn't know what the end game was going to be. And frankly, I was scared to death to have to deal with it. Can you tell
0: us a little bit about that vulnerability and that where you were in that place in that moments of despair many days in the hospital and what it took for you to, you know, kind of stand up for yourself and it was
2: scary because you you know every morning the 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 residents and they you know the hospitalists would come in and every day they would tell me the same thing which was nothing like we can't help you today's the day you need to make a decision you need to make a decision you need to let us go in it's not going to be a big deal the bag is not really a big deal And and let's, you know, we gotta get this show on the road. They were not happy with me because I asked a lot of tough questions. And I knew, as I said, I knew my body, and I knew that it's so important to have a great relationship with your doctor. I believe that if you if your doctor doesn't hear you and doesn't understand you and doesn't listen to you, get a new doctor. And Dr. Childs was so attentive and she sat with she never came in with a cell phone, she sat at my bedside and explained everything to me me let me make the decisions with her choices and but she brought in dr lane who was the you know infectious disease guy because they were puzzled they couldn't figure it out but together they collaborated and i felt like so i knew that by the time i got out of there i was going to be healed i didn't know how i did not feel that way at ucla hospital where i was prior
0: wow thanks for being uh yeah dr childs do you want to share any closing remarks or we um, can't hear you, her. Oh, you're muted.
1: Unmute. Okay, so, um, so I think that's the whole thing. It's, uh, it is it is about a collaboration. I mean, it's a partnership and, um, and it's also a partnership with the other doctors. Dr. Khan and I work together on patients all the time and nobody's making decisions in a silo, um, especially with the patient outside the decision-making. And so it was only, it was only, I think my ability to explain things in a way that Tammy can understand so that she felt comfortable with the decisions that we were making. And then there's no second guessing. And so, you know, and so here, here we are, I mean, and, and it's led to a really awesome friendship. And so, I mean, it's um, when you, when you take care of a patient for a long time, who's sick and you help them through, a really tough situation. I know Dr. Khan has, you know, you develop, you develop a connection with with patients when you work together and you interact in those most, you know, they're the most um, vulnerable times of their lives. And it's such a privilege to be able to help people through um, those really intimate, it's an intimate relationship, you know,
2: and I think when you have a doctor who you trust and who is looking at other ways, it's not my way or the highway. Uh, it really, it just brings you comfort. I had a friend in New York who was diagnosed with cancer in her stomach in the middle of COVID. I said, get on a plane and get to Dr. Childs. Get the hell out of Boston where you are. And she got on a plane in the middle of COVID in the beginning when nobody was flying. Yeah. And Dr. Childs says it turned out she didn't have cancer. Dr. Childs, talk about saved her life. She only saved my butt. We oh,
1: save her story for another. That's a
2: whole another story but the, my, but the point is when you trust a doctor you can let your guard down when you're sick in a hospital you can't, you're not in of sound mind to make decisions when in a, in a language that doesn't that you've never ever heard before I never heard the word diverticulitis never heard it and I had had a colonoscopy that, that didn't say I had diverticulosis so this was a shock to me I, I went to the hospital I thought I had a kidney stone. So it just goes to show. And you
0: also mentioned that you did medicine for NBC News for 15 years. You've never heard the word before. So there's so many different things going on. And that's exactly what we're here for, is to bridge the gap between the patient and the doctor and to bring awareness and education to everyone. And I want to thank you to Dr. Childs and to Tammy for joining us today and for everyone listening. And for facilitating. Of course, thank you so much. And to learn more about the programs, medical services, initiatives, or ways to give, um, please visit providence.org and you can catch us there. Make sure to follow us on social media at Providence on Twitter or under Providence Health System on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. All right, thank you all so much for watching and email contact us for any questions.